I've titled uh, the message this week, really simple. You know, I'm really original. I try not to go out of the way and get really weird. It's called Now Concerning Gifts, as you can probably see behind you. It's, uh, I steal things from Paul and other preachers because that's what we preachers do, and then we just tell people we took it from somebody else. But it's very simple. Now Concerning Gifts. So after three weeks of talking about who Paul was, how he got there and all that stuff, we're actually going to tackle this gift thing. And in beginning to address the gifts to the church, this is one of the things I really want us to focus on. Paul makes clear that the unity of the body and the proper use of the gifts amongst the body of believers, which is to glorify God and to edify the church, something that I think we miss too often. The use and the, or the proper use of the gifts is to glorify God and to edify the church has to be remembered by his people. The gifts aren't given so that we can just have a party every Sunday. The gifts are given to edify the church, to glorify God. When we take off down a track where it doesn't do that, then we have some issues. So off we go. By way of reminder, I want us all to understand, just in case you haven't been here over these last couple weeks, Paul spent the first portion of his letter here in 1 Corinthians, which two weeks ago I did assign you as homework, so I hope all of you have studied very well and you know what I'm talking about, because I'm going to breeze through all of this stuff. He covers all kinds of issues. It's a very personal letter that Paul writes to these folks. He's responding to at least one letter that the church had written to him, asking him all kinds of questions on how do we fix this? How do we fix that? How does this operate? How does that operate? Is this allowed? Is that not allowed? It's one of those letters that every pastor always likes to get slid under his door, and then you've got to try and figure out how it is to answer. Well, there's what Paul has. Every single issue that covered pretty much every aspect of daily life in Corinth, Paul was confronted with. Yep, up to and including the role that Paul held within the church there, those who were along with him and traveled with him to that church, those were all being called into question and, and they were asking all kinds of different things that Paul needed to sort out. And in reading his response carefully, starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we know it, at the beginning of the letter, reading that carefully, we discover a lack of unity a lack of unity within the body there, because it's mentioned on more than one occasion. If we slow down enough to read, we see that Paul actually gives us hints to what some of the problems were, even though we don't have the letter that was given to them. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, or 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. He's beginning to address some unity issues that they're coming up in his letters he says again in what we know to be chapter three but i brothers could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in christ i fed you with milk not solid food he's not a pastor that always gets invited back <laughs> for you are not ready for it i mean he probably brings his best sermon once and then hopes he gets invited again but and even now you're not yet ready for you're still of the flesh for while there is jealousy among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For, one says, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Right, we need this type of encouragement from the pulpit. Not in a mean way, where you've got a pastor up there with a baseball bat just taking it to town on his people, but rather in a loving way, directing people in the right direction. Every once in a while, it would be good for us all to hear this. When one of you has a grievance, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, in the first two verses, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? What does that imply? That they're suing each other. 
They don't look any better than the rest of the people they're living with. They can't even get along well enough to, I'm going to take you to court. So why are you doing that? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Let that sink in. My kids, when they were little, didn't think I had enough brains to tie my shoes. But the Bible tells me that as a saint, I'm going to judge the world. If you are a saint, you are going to judge the world. That's something that's given to us right here. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In other words, why are you bringing this stuff before the regular courts? Can you not sort this out as a community of believers? Disunity, a fractured body, not knowing exactly how to handle all of these things. And reading these, it's really no wonder he lands where he does in what we know to be chapter 12, 13, and 14 in this letter when it comes to dealing with the gifts. In light of that, writing chapter 13, not as a marriage scripture, which is where we tend to read chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't remember wrongs. You know that one? We read that at weddings, and then five years on, we're like, we forgot all of that stuff. But he doesn't write that chapter as a marriage text, although it works there. He does so as a reminder of how we are to operate within the gifts, within community, and toward one another. We are to do so how? In love. Why? Because without love, we've got nothing. We have absolutely nothing. He's reminding this church that they've lost their primary reason for everything in relation to a healthy community of believers, and that's love. Four letters, one word, they were lacking. John the Apostle in the book of Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, he says the same thing about the church in Ephesus. He tells them that you have forgotten your first love. Get yourself back to where you were. You used to do things right. You're not doing things right anymore. Why? Because you've forgotten your first love. Years and years earlier, Paul himself, writing to his Ephesian friends, remember, he's the one that started that church. Apparently, they had struggles with this for a good 30 or 40 years. He writes this to them in chapter 4, and we learn this. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. How many of us like to walk in humility and gentleness? Mm. With patience, bearing with one another in what? In love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Boy, those three verses are a mouthful, are they not? When you think about this, this theme of unity of the Spirit within the framework of Christian community, driven by love for one another, is a theme of just about every letter that Paul the Apostle writes. In fact, it's the theme of the entire New Testament, to love one another as Christ loved the church. We have to remember that that's the direction we're going. The unity of the saints, the body of believers, and the love that we have one for another. Why? Why is it so hard for us to do that? Well, because we're human beings. And where do you think the enemy starts to drive wedges in to the community of saints? Where do you think he does that? He does that in this area. He starts here. Disunity, lack of love, sowing seeds of chaos and disunity among the people of God. It doesn't take a whole lot to push someone over the edge when they have a little bit of an issue with somebody and they're not being honest about it. All right? You're walking on a razor's edge and "Mm, I'm a little upset with so-and-so, but we're not going to deal with it in a healthy way. We're not going to confess anything. We're just going to go 100 miles an hour down the road. Guess what gets lost first? Love and unity because we are then fractured. And Paul does all of this and he explains all of this to them because he knows that a church 
not unified in purpose under the headship of Christ, even with all of the gifts operating, becomes a church which lacks the power to be a witness for the gospel. And that's what was happening in Corinth. They were even taking each other to court. And in that, the maturity to see things through doesn't happen either. We don't grow up. You're infants still when you should be mature, Paul says. You see, maturity only happens when we're walking in love, walking in unity, and we work out in ministry what it is God has called us to. And once all of that happens, if we're no longer operating in the truth of what Jesus said, was supposed to be our identifying mark as believers. John records for us in the 13th chapter, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you what? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that's a huge piece because frankly, I know for myself, I can't speak for any of you, okay? But I am not all that lovable sometimes. She's out back and she'll tell you that that's true. Actually, there's two of them that are out back that will tell you that that's true. I am not the most lovable person. Now, maybe all of you are. I don't know. But when the world looks at the church, let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. What does it see? Does it see the love of Christ manifesting itself for a lost world? What does it see? I leave that with you to sort out because it's important for us to think through. How are we being seen in this world? Are we being seen carrying the love of Christ? Or are we being seen in other ways that minimize the importance and the truth of the gospel of Jesus? I don't care if you're the most gifted person in the world in prophetic utterances or tongues or whatever it may be. If you have not love, Paul says you're just whacking away on a symbol and you don't sound like nothing but noise. If we have not love. Love is the primary driver to everything when we talk about the gifts and everything else. Unity happens when we love in spite of differences, when we love simply because he first loved us. See, the mistake that we make being good Pentecostal people is we come to these chapters and we say, gifts, yeah, what ones do I have? And then we try to seek after them. And then things get, as I like to say, pear-shaped. All that means is it gets really weird, wonky, and it's not normal. And then everybody sits back and goes, what's going on here? So we come to these and go, oh, well, I have the gift of this. I have the gift of that. I have the gift of this. Well, guess what? None of that matters. None of that matters if we aren't functioning the way Paul tells us to. That's why 13 is stuck in between 12 and 14. Not just because that's where it belongs, but because those words needed to be there. We need to love. It's the primary driver. When we recognize that there is diversity within unity not uniformity. We learned that in our studies in Ephesians, didn't we? Within unity, there is diversity, meaning there's a whole bunch of different things going on in different people. A healthy body of believers will always celebrate the differences that are among the body of believers. Always celebrate the differences that are found. The diversity which God brings together within the local congregation is important for God to be glorified whether it be in gifts, whether it be in just diversity of ethnic, um, who we are, where we come from, and all of that stuff. It's important that we celebrate that, that unity is found within diversity. 
You see, the church in Corinth seemed unified in only one thing. In my studies, I discovered this. In all of my years of studying 1 Corinthians, I shared with somebody, this is the book that I studied the most, and I only got this today. See, so I'm not that bright. But there you have it. Here it is. Gordon Fee puts it this way. Paul is the only thing that this entire church, or the only person that this entire church is unified around. They are absolutely sure, the entire church is, that they are against what Paul says is right. That's the only thing they're unified in, is that they disagree with Paul. That's the whole thing in a nutshell. That's why this letter came about. Paul and his teaching on how the gifts are used, and specifically the gift of tongues, becomes an issue. We have to understand that or we lose the fact that all gifts are for today. All the gifts are for today. I would argue with the smartest people in the world that they're not. All of the gifts are for today, but how they're used and if they're abused really causes issues. It's in the midst of all of this where I can imagine Paul getting up one night, writing this letter, stretching a little bit, going, okay, now we've got to tackle this, goes to grab himself another cup of coffee because it's going to be an all-nighter, another candle because the one he's got is burned away, dips his pen into the ink thing, and he starts to write all of a second. All of a sudden, he just takes a breath, and he says, okay, here we go. This is what it's all about. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. In other words, it's a kind way of saying what you think you know to be right is wrong. I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. They, they weren't even getting it right from the start. Spiritual things weren't new to the Corinthian church. Corinth itself was a super-spiritualized and hyper-spiritualized place in Greece. In fact, they had a spiritual culture that on every corner you could find what it was you needed. We've shared about that before. You see, and they, and they thought that they had a good grip on these things. Well, Jesus just gives us, you know, speaking in the spirit and tongues or whatever it is, so we're just changing our shoes from this set of shoes to that set of shoes. And Paul's saying, no, you don't have a grip on it. You see, they were deceived. They were led astray. Tongues weren't a new thing for them. The spiritual language or a word from the gods was something that they actually sought after. I'm not going to get into the details on how they did that because it was bizarre and it was weird and it was really kind of gross. But that was what they were looking for. So it makes sense that there was a concern about whether it was from God or not. Is this really God working in me or not? Or am I just like tripping over my own tongue and are weird things happening? How can we discern that this is from God? How can we know that it's him that's speaking? That's the question. Paul, as far as I'm concerned, probably the most brilliant philosopher ever to walk the face of this planet, keeps it simple once again so that we can all get it he says therefore in verse 3 i want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of god ever says jesus is accursed and no one can say jesus is lord except in the holy spirit full stop that's it helps them he does to have a simple framework of discernment how do we know this is from god ask yourself this question very simply who's being glorified who's being glorified this is why much to the chagrin of some people when things get to be a circus up at an altar in a church i get very disgusted that's not the holy spirit it's a distraction it's drawing away from the glory of god and it becomes a circus and i don't care who knows that the reality is, is that the gifts operate and function in accordance with what God says and how he gives them. And when we become the center of attention in the utilization of those gifts, who's being glorified? 
Me or God? Me. Paul says, doesn't work that way. Who's being glorified? It's that simple. Paul doesn't wrestle through who's saved, who's not saved. Are they the right type of person? Are they tackling the right type of speech or whatever it may be? Nothing like that. Very simple. Who is being glorified in the midst of everything that's going on? If you're getting a check in your spirit going, you know, I don't see where God's being glorified in this, you first ask yourself the question, am I being rebellious in my heart right at this moment in time? Or, worse yet, have we turned left around the wrong corner and things have gotten out of control and it has nothing to do with God anymore. It just has to do with all kinds of goofy things that are going on. And those are the questions, frankly, that I wrestle with in colleges. Because you know what young people see online? That. Well, is that what your church looks like? Goodness, no. No, not at all. We can't miss this. We cloud the issue when we make it far more complicated and we try to define just what it might look like and through whom it may come. Is God being glorified? He can and does use anybody. It's that simple. Not one of us in this room is any more special than the person sitting next to you in the eyes of God. He can and will use any willing spirit to manifest the gifts that he gives to the church. But it is for the edification of the body and for his glory. Not so I can go buy a Cadillac and have Pastor Mike's traveling healing show. That's not what it's about. It's never about that. We don't want to do those things. Nor do we want to define what gift ought to be working and when. That's never our job. Paul is always clear about this. He works that out as we see this in the next few verses. In verses 4 through 6. This is what he says. Now there are a variety of gifts. But the same spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. And we read that and go, yep, that's right. There's a whole bunch of different things going on, and God's given it to the church, right? That's how we read that. And then we take off down the road. But I don't want us to move too quickly past this, because Paul does something here that's a very deep theological point that we really need to understand as it relates to unity, as it relates to unity. Speaking to a polytheistic culture where each temple had their own deity and you went to this corner if you needed this, you went to that corner if you needed this, Paul makes very clear that there is only one true God. But he does so in three different ways. He does so in three different ways. See, for the Corinthians, depending on their need, again, you would go to one place or another for whatever type of spiritual blessing that you would need. Not so with this Jesus. Not so with this Jesus, Paul is saying. When you come to him, you come to the fountain and you come to the wellspring of all spiritual blessing. You don't need anybody else. You don't go looking for anybody else. The all-sufficient source and blessing and power is Jesus himself. And Paul here captures the Trinity in such a beautiful way. You let that rest within you. Maybe some of you know this already. That's great. Let's just relearn this. But if you don't, look what he does here. He captures the Trinity in a beautiful way. And he uses the Trinity as the perfect example of unity within diversity. That's the example he's giving. You see, we have the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Yet each one is separate and distinct within their function. And yet are unified as the one true God. And this becomes the pattern for how the body of Christ ought to operate. You want to know what perfect unity looks like? Look at the Godhead. Three separate and distinct, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet one true 
God, operating in perfect unity, although distinctly different. Unity within diversity. This ought to be the pattern of how the body of Christ operates. And N.T. Wright, in his little tiny commentary, puts it this way. Speaking on this passage, he says, Paul does something striking. At the very moment when his wanting to say that the various gifts that different Christians have and all are, are all to be seen within a unity, a unity which is God himself, he expresses that unity in three closely related ways. Spirit, Lord, God. Unity within diversity driven by love. Unity within diversity driven by love. Love for his creation and for his desire to bless and empower us for his purposes. This is not an afterthought for the Apostle Paul. This is the prime thought for the Apostle Paul. Love and unity flow from the Godhead in absolute perfect unity and with purpose. So what's the purpose? That's verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. It's not just for me. It's for the common good. Not my personal pleasure or satisfaction. We'll learn more on that next week as we dig a little deeper into this. Nor is it to be bragged about and thought about and taught about as some spiritual Boy Scout or Girl Scout badge that we've somehow earned and sewn on our lapel. Oh, look at I've got the gift of tongues and you don't. <laughs> I could prophesy over you and you can't. <laughs> you get the spiritual hierarchy. Now you got the Corinthian church. I mean, we chuckle, but any of you who have spent any time in the Assemblies of God or the Pentecostal movement, understand that this is where the church fractures. Oh, I got this ministry and it's better than yours. I want that corner of the stage, sister. Okay, brother over here, I want this corner of the stage. That's not how it works. It's not how it's supposed to. It's for the common good. Why? Because it is only by the grace of God and his goodness towards me and towards you that we have these gifts. He gives them to us for the common good of this body of believers to minister one to another, to take care of one another, and then to walk out these doors Monday to Saturday and ask ourselves, how can I do that with the people I engage, not just within the four walls of my church community, but within the greater sphere of my influence, the people that I see throughout the week? How can I then minister to them? How can I share with them God's grace and His goodness, how good He's been to me, how much grace He has poured out on me? You see, the gifts become secondary when we look at them that way. They become secondary and a means to the end. They don't become the end in and of itself. And that's the mistake we make. You see, God is the end Himself. That is ultimately who we ought to be seeking, is God the Father. Everything flows down from Him at that point. But if we seek Him in order to get, what are we doing? We're making God a means to an end. And what it is we want as the end in and of itself. And that's not the way to have it. That's backwards. We are to worship Him and to enjoy Him daily. The common good is rooted in the correct focus of His people. 14.12, Paul says this, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. Building up the church. The common good is rooted in the correct focus of his people. Upward and outward. Focus on worshiping God the Father in and through Jesus his Son. The Holy Spirit shows up and gifts us so that we can edify one another. That is the purpose of the gifts. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us in his book, Preaching and Preachers, that we have to be careful not to make God the means to an end. And I sat down when I read that, and I heard him say that because I was listening to his whole sermon series on preachers and whatnot. And if you want to have your face melted off, listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a little dry at times, but I'll tell you, you've got to listen to him two or three times to get it all. But here's the thing. He says, what ends up happening is when we seek God out in order to get what we think will make us happy and bring us our joy, God is no longer the end. And we will never be satisfied. But if, however, we make God the end and we find him in and through the person of Jesus of Nazareth, everything else falls into place. Everything else comes about as it should. If we realize that God himself is the end, The moment that this is forgotten, things will spiral out of control into one of two things. Legalism or licentiousness. It's just a fancy word for lawlessness. Go and do whatever you want kind of thing. We are either bound to it or else we are bound to nothing and free to do whatever. Both of them are bad news because in both cases we lose the freedom of the promised Holy Spirit. Listen, if we give in to everything and chase after the gifts for the sake of the gift and the feeling that that gift gives us, guess what? We have turned that into the object of our affection. And this is where I started getting uncomfortable in my seat listening to Mr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Because what happens when you turn something into the object of your affection? That's called what? An idol. And the last time I checked, God does not share his throne with anybody. So that unsettled me more than just a little bit. You see, that's lawlessness. We just do whatever we want and we chase the feeling. The opposite end of that is that we shut it all down and we completely micromanage it and control it and say that the only way God can operate is a certain way within a certain people. That too becomes a problem. Well, God couldn't use that person. I saw them out Saturday night, you know, having a cigarette and a beer. Okay, well, I got two questions for you. What business is it of yours? And two, how did you know? I'm just curious. We don't, we don't get to choose who God uses. And sometimes he uses people that unsettle us. Sometimes he uses people that unsettle us. That happens to me quite often. You see, we have to be careful. Because we don't want to have that as a problem for us because it devalues human beings. And we start to base whether they're accepted or not upon our criteria. You can't have that gift because you don't fit my mold. You're not operating within a framework that I think perhaps you ought to operate in or I ought to operate in. So the danger there is that guess whose standard I'm using as I see it? Mine. And I can't find my way from the bed to the coffee pot in the morning without making a mistake. So why would I want my standard to be the measure of goodness and greatness for somebody? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Because guess what else that is? That is also, once again, idolatry. Idolatry. It's the idolization of self. Completely law-bound and self-centered. We lock everything down until we feel the people that are before us have met our standards. That happens quite often when we get unsettled with things that are going on in the world. We tribe off. And the first thing that we lose is grace. First thing we lose is grace. Grace gets thrown out the window. 
and shortly behind it is the love of God. We are non-passionate or compassionate people, completely uncompassionate, not caring one bit about anybody else because we're just trying to guard the way things ought to be as we see them. And the love of God goes right out the window as well. And we measure people by our standards. You see, the whole purpose that Paul is talking about here is teaching them unity and helping them understand that love is the ultimate goal in everything we do as a body of believers in this world. And I say to you, that is the most difficult thing any of us deal with. Because we encounter very unlovable people throughout our work week. But I'm encouraged by that because I'm an unlovable person and Jesus still loves me. And I'm fairly confident that a couple of you out there might be unlovable on occasion too. So I remind myself that at any given point, I could be the unlovable one in the room. But if love is the ultimate goal, if unity is what makes the church strong, and the gifts are given for the common good, then our goal has to start with the giver of all good things. Not seek the gifts, but seek the giver. And then all good things flow from that. See, as the worship team comes up, I want to leave you with a couple of things as we get ourselves ready to rest here. I got as far as verse 7 because I think it was important for us to understand really what Paul is doing here as he explains the gifts. Tackling these issues, the lack of love and the lack of unity that this body of believers has, unsettled Paul because he knew that the church would not grow beyond where it was until they understood that love and unity was absolutely essential in the community of believers and then in the world in which they lived in. So we have to remember, it is to him that we turn as we close being reminded of his love for us. And that's important. I don't want any show of hands because I'm not looking for them. But I want to ask you a question. Do you remind yourself how unlovable you were before Jesus found you? And then remind yourself how much he loved you anyway in spite of how unlovable you felt you were when he found you. You see, if we remind ourselves of that, we can then look at some of the most unlovable people we have ever seen in the world and say, you know what? That was me. And because of the grace that God gives us, the grace that God gives me, I can then do everything within the power of the Holy Spirit to love this person who seems to be so unlovable. Why? Because if we see them the way Jesus sees them, he loves them. He died for them. And how do you know that it wasn't for that moment in time that you were placed in that person's life to look at them and say, you know what? I know how you feel, but have I got something to tell you? See, James puts it this way. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of his truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
Now, I leave you with this. That's James 1, 17 and 18. It doesn't say every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights upon those whom love him already. It simply says every good and perfect gift is from above. That is a text of Scripture that speaks of God's common grace amongst all of humanity. Every good thing in this world, the Bible tells us, comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. And if we can help some people recognize that who don't know who he is, we are on our way to understanding what our task is in this world, glorifying him, edifying one another, giving for the common good of his people, and sharing with the world who Jesus is. Let's stand. Father, as we just close in this last song, if I could have the prayer teams come. For anybody who wants more prayer, 